This podcast is brought to you by lineupmedia.fm. Visionary Wealth Advisors is an SEC-registered investment advisor with offices located in Colorado, Florida, Illinois, and Missouri. Investment information presented in this broadcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon by any individual. It is recommended that all listeners seek individual advice from a qualified tax, legal, or investment advisor. All statements and opinions expressed in this broadcast are based on information considered to be reliable, although no express or implied warranty of accuracy is given. It is important to consider that all investments involve risk, and no investment strategy can guarantee positive results. You know, it's been said that success comes to those who wait. Belief started in the fourth grade. I believe that it's earned with the right attitude. And I had this nagging feeling. A great belief system. I was capable of so much more. An action every single day. In all the pursuits that we have in our lives, I think there's an element of suffering. When you mix that in with faith, courage, discipline, and most importantly, a vision. Never give up on yourself. That's when greatness happens. The Circuit of Success with Brett Gilliland. Welcome to the Circuit of Success. I'm your host, Brett Gilliland, and today I am with uh, Senior Wealth Advisor, Selden Martin from Visionary Wealth Advisor. Selden, how you doing? I'm great, Brett. Thanks for having me here today. Absolutely. Excited to have you. I know you've been doing this, what, maybe one or two years? A couple years. A couple years. Maybe <laughs> 30, 37 37 years. <laughs> years. So you've seen a thing or two in the stock market, haven't you? Uh, I've seen a lot happen, you've but lot. It's, uh, there's always a new wrinkle to it, so it makes yeah. it a, a kind of an interesting game to stay tuned to. So I know you've got lots of experience in the wealth management industry, Selden, uh, one, as a, a successful advisor, and then also you've been studying and working with top advisors all over the country. Uh, tell us how the experiences you've, uh, that you've seen have shaped your views really about working with investors and their wealth management needs. Yeah, great question. And certainly um, in the 37 years that I have been doing it, I've seen a lot of change and it's been driven uh, by a lot of factors, not the least of which is probably just the amount of technological innovation that's really impacted every career, including the wealth management industry. So, uh, you know, when I started in the early 80s, it was still pretty much of a kind of a brokerage business. And I think the old adage of um, get a hunch and bet a bunch was kind of the norm for, for if you would call it investing or wealth management. But um, the amount of services and products, you know, were fairly limited back then. And so uh, as the sophistication and needs of wealth management services expanded over the years, then a lot of of uh, better services were created to deliver as potential solutions to investors and and um, fulfill a broader set of wealth management needs. So technology's been a you know really big influence in our industry, and and um, I think that's been you know kind of the driver in in uh, changing the to to much the better a more holistic and better wealth management experience, both you know on both sides of the equation, right. both for the advisor and for the um, for the client experience as well. You know, along with that, uh, teaming's become a big thing. So as as the advisor of yesteryear kind of morphed into more of a consultative, comprehensive type of framework of advice, oftentimes now in a fiduciary manner and fee-based as opposed to commission-based, uh, it set kind of a better planning-based framework where it evolved or necessitated the advisory team to deliver, to deliver a broader array of yeah. uh, solutions to the client. And so, 
tough to be, you know, not, you know, it's, tough, it's hard to be a subject matter expert in, you know, numerous things. Right. And I think that led towards a kind of a natural evolution of teaming. So teaming was almost non-existent in the 80s. Now, probably 75, 80 percent of advisors are on some type of team configuration and the client benefits because they get the expertise of uh, the functional expertise, you know, divvied up among the team. And so, right. you know, on our own team, you know, there are some things that I'm just not as strong or, or versed on. And yet I have teammates that, you know, can bring better perspective and the client benefits from getting kind of the synergies of all of that right. working together for them. Yeah, so when you think about that, I mean, obviously you've seen some of the the most successful advisors from around the around the country, really. But I mean, it, when you think about it from a client standpoint, why is that fiduciary versus that brokerage, as you talked about? Why do you think that game has changed, and why that's so important in their planning? You know, I think the um, just kind of the academic um, evidence supports that. You know the the risk level taken of kind of the old get a hunch and bet a bunch is just not going to provide the best experience. It might work in up markets, but certainly in the downturns in 87 and the uh, tech bubble burst and then in 08, you know, those kind of, you know, familiar periods for maybe some of the listeners out there in, you know, market history, um, you know, the concentration of risk exposure really kind of undermines the planning and the so forth. So, um, we, uh, you know, that kind of leads into maybe another thing that I've seen change a lot over the years, which is that it used to be your value and your distinguishment as an advisor was really could be wrapped around or wrapped in kind of your technical competency. What did you do that um, separated you from those that were doing sort of the the norm of yesteryear yeah. and, and uh now operating, as you said, more of a fiduciary uh, framework of advice. And, uh, you know, we would argue or submit now that the uh, technical competencies of if you ask an advisor what they do and they say, we develop a plan for a client and we review it, we asset allocate their funds into an appropriate risk adjusted portfolio for their particular investment objectives and report to them on an ongoing basis. Those are all functional activities that you deliver as an advisory team, but those are table stakes. Everybody yeah. does that in the yeah. business today. And so one of the things that I was fortunate enough in my in over the years of my career was to get to work with a real wide variety of advisors from all the different delivery channels that make up the wealth management industry. In fact, uh, I spent a couple of years with a training firm we started and we studied advisors and best practices and and it was interesting the very best advisors the top five to ten percent of advisors in the industry um, they when you talk to their clients and when you talk to them about what they do they never talk about their technical competencies or their functional activities they talk in terms of their value proposition being wrapped up inside of the emotional benefits that they deliver to the client. And it's interesting now that I've gone back in the last few years and, and started working directly again with my own clients. When I talk to them and do reviews with them, you know, I'd love it if they say, oh, you're doing such a great job. You're right. making so much money in the market. But the reality is they that what they really appreciate is the emotional benefit. They like to be able to sleep with peace and feel that 
you know, they've entrusted the care of their assets and supervision yeah. to someone that allows them yeah. to, 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 to feel good at night. Yeah. Those advisors that got referred the most business, that had the highest client satisfactions, that was really a prevalent yeah. uh, distinguishment that stuck out. We just got done talking about behavioral finance with our chief investment officer, John Fisher, and it is the emotions, the fear, right, the greed, uh, all the stuff that can come along with what we do for a living. I think it's critically important, and that's what you do a good job of really talking our clients through the psychology of what they need to be doing to, to hit their goals. Yeah, again, going back to what we found when we studied advisors, most of that um, ability to help kind of as an advisor, which I think is a really important responsibility in the client-advisor relationship, most of that comes from doing your work correctly on the very front end of a new client relationship. So we like to spend an inordinate amount of time on what we call the discovery phase. And it's just, you know, typically clients come in or prospective new clients come in and they've got some kind of disintermediated money in motion. They just retired. They just inherited some money. They just sold a business. They're unhappy where they've been and they want to yep. potentially, you know, interview you and review your your capability and your offering and and they just want to you know what i have to do and fill out the prerequisite paperwork that goes with a heavily regulated industry like ours and get going and we sort of you know put the, pe- put the, put pe- the brakes down put the brakes on and say let's back up because it's a lot easier for us to uh, deliver that satisfied value proposition if we do our work on the front end and find out a little bit about the client's goals and objectives. We like to think our best work is done when we work with a portfolio that's really designed to meet and accomplish the um, the prioritization of the investment objectives of the client. And, and, and so we have to discover that. We have to ask a lot of questions. We have to find out about previous experiences, what they liked and didn't like about, about it, what their expectations are yep. about our team uh, and how they want us to communicate with them and and what they're looking for in us, and all that takes some time. And sometimes it takes you know a yeah. couple of meetings to get to that. So we spent a lot of effort on uh, on um, on the discovery phase of, of a new relationship. Yeah. And I think do, communication's key too, right? No different than a marriage with your spouse. It's I mean your your marriage with your clients, if you will. It's communication is is critically important. That's one of the key ingredients we think is so you know natural question in the uh, in the whole how do you deliver emotional benefits part of the argument as being your value proposition. And um, there's three or four things that, that we really focus on. One of them is communication. You know, how do you build that relationship to make sure you really understand what the client's after? We do the goals-based planning. And that actually leading into my next question is, you know, the proprietary products that some companies have versus like Visionary Wealth Advisors where we're truly independent. We don't manufacture our own product. It's fiduciary versus the kind of the, the brokerage world. Why is that so important for our listeners right now? If they're driving down the road or they're sitting at home listening to this and they're thinking, gosh, I don't even know what my person is, but why is it so important to be a fiduciary and not have your own manufactured products? So it part and parcel with a big reason why I chose to join the visionary team. I worked uh, for a better part of my career with a large firm that did – kind of manufacture or create a lot of its own proprietary product and a lot of it was good and I'm not going to pick on sure. the specific firm I think anybody that is probably tuned in and listening to a show like this has an interest in financial services or investing in wealth management um, there's been a lot of press in the last few years about 
conflicted agendas. And it was important for me if I was going to work in this next phase of my life with, with clients to be in an environment where I had the ability to be fully transparent. And that's part of that communication thing we just talked about. We tell our clients exactly up front what our fees are. We wait when the first statement shows that they get that shows the first fee billing on it. We walk through that with them. We're completely transparent. And that's a really big yeah. trust building type of practice. And so we we are interested in the best solution for the client, not the one that pays us the most money. In that's fact, right. uh, we don't do anything that has a product commission. We want to focus on, again, tying this back to here's your objective and here's how we're trying to build you know, a vehicle, a roadmap to get you there in the best risk-adjusted fashion that, that we know how to do it. You know, I think what's nice, too, especially as a, as a leader of an organization, is to know that if, if Selden Martin, uh, Senior Wealth Advisor, Visionary Wealth Advisors, is out making three different recommendations, the nice thing is to know that Selden Martin's getting paid the same regardless of what recommendation you pick, right? Because in the other world that we both have lived in in the past is, well, maybe this one I make x right which is a lot of money and this one i make y and it's not as much and then there's z is kind of in the middle where, where do you think i hope you pick right right and even though good good quality high level high value people there's that there's that problem right and so i think in our world we don't have that which is which is huge you know it, it reminds me we um we brought in a new client a couple months ago and the client was we were aggregating together relationships that were at a few other places, but he had a majority of um, his family's wealth management assets at a, at a particular firm. And I said, you know, what? why are you interested in talking to us? What's not gone well, for instance? And he said, well, I never hear from him until the last day of the month. And it's usually some kind of urgent, this product is available today, only today. Yeah. And he said, you know, I end up putting some money in it. And then it always shows up on the statement the next day or two at the end of the month and it's down a certain amount, and he was smart enough to figure out that's probably something that has a you know an embedded commission comp, in it, yeah. and it shows up you know on the bid side on the 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 value less the commission yeah. side on the statement, and you know clients the world's gotten sophisticated enough that the days of consistently you know providing that kind of offering to a client they're going to figure it out it's true for our model as well so we are with uh selden martin senior wealth advisor with visionary wealth advisors uh we're appreciating selden's time and just like every week on the circuit of success we get to uh, really dive in the minds of brilliant people whether they're financial advisors like selden whether they are athletes uh business leaders authors whatever it may be we're just trying to help you become the best version of yourself and and in today's people uh people like selden we're just trying to help you make the best decisions with your money going forward so stay with us as we jump to a break we'll be right back with selden martin Welcome back to the Circuit of Success. I am your host, Brett Gilliland. I'm also the founder and CEO of Visionary Wealth Advisors. And today I'm joined in the studio with Selden Martin, Senior Wealth Advisor with Visionary Wealth Advisors. So Selden, we've talked a lot about just your experience, you know, 37 years in the business. Uh, You've seen a lot. You've studied a lot from the markets. You've studied a lot from advisors. You don't have to keep reminding the listening (laughs) audience is 37 years. It it feels old as you turn the page to a new calendar year. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So let's talk about in that work though you you all manage risk allocated models using funds using etfs uh, other individual securities can you tell us the factors that go into deciding 
kind of what approach you take with investors? Yeah, I think a big uh, sort of distinguishing or differentiating thing about our team is that we're we're likely to provide probably a more customized type of solution to a client. There's nothing wrong at all with predetermined models. We have very good uh, models at our firm that go down the path of exchange-traded funds, ETFs, um, and we also have institutional share class funds that's sort of a matrix or menu of funds that are uh, blended together to fit sort of the, the risk allocation buckets and we use those. We think they're great, and they're um, they're appropriate depending on the the profile of the client. Sure. But some of the factors that, to your question, that come up that sometimes lead us towards a more customized uh, solution would be one: the time frame of the investor. Um, so it, it'd be nice if every client came in and they had a forty-year time horizon. Right. Doesn't quite work that way. We know that we're probably going to do okay if we get our oars in the water and ride the the game over a forty-year period. But unfortunately, it doesn't always work that way. People sometimes inherit money, or they sell a business, or they get control for the first time. Control meaning maybe decision responsibility yeah. around retirement funds that might come out of an employment. A qualified retirement plan like a 401k plan where they worked and their time frame we hope is long and it's getting longer and that's one of the big risk of that we think is a great risk for investors today is that it's likely that you're going to live a lot longer than our parents and grandparents right. did and so it necessitates you know a, a more sophisticated level of planning but if somebody's going to start using distribution income from those funds you know this year or starting next year and i.e they're shifting from work mode into uh, near or pre-retiree on into retirement mode retiree mode then you sure can't put all of somebody's money 100 percent into the, the stock market for instance and then sure. have a 20 percent drawdown like we saw peak to trough recently in the latter part of 2018 and then they're doing a distribution on top of that so you've got to plan around that control risk uh, but the time frame is very important, and so the the uh, the shorter the time frame, uh, the more apt we are to customize kind of the way that we build and leg into a portfolio. The amount of assets is another factor determinant in there. Yep. Um, we know that at a certain level that we can achieve enough diversification to sort of represent. We think the the market academic studies would support that. But it, there's a practical amount of money that somebody needs to have that makes the the customization of having, you know, for instance, a stock or an equity portfolio built with individual companies that you want to own. You, you know, we feel you have to have a certain amount of money. You're better off using the exchange-traded funds and or the, the mutual fund approach. Um, also, I think it's a little bit of an issue of, you know, what asset classes are you using to – fulfill or deliver a you know, constructed portfolio yeah. for the needs of the client. We can't be, in, in our model, we don't think we can efficiently be all things to all people. We don't have the ability to pour over credit analysis in the fixed income market. We don't have the ability to follow uh, research from companies that are based outside of the U.S. There are a lot of companies based out of the U.S. that do most of their business in the U.S., and there's a fair amount of research available yeah. but if if you're asking us to get involved with you know identifying individual companies say in emerging market countries it, it just is beyond the bandwidth capability of probably most advisory sure. teams so 
all those things um, come into play when we're you know we're deciding are we going to use sort of an individually built portfolio or not. And sometimes, to be honest, it's a little bit of function of the client's engagement interest. There are just some clients that want to be more interactively engaged and involved. They want to own individual equities. They have strong opinions about, I want to own Apple. We have a house full of Apple products, and I want it right. in my portfolio. And in theory, they're going to get that the other way anyway, because Apple's probably going to be, of course, embedded in inside a mutual fund or an index fund or whatever. But uh, we think that we can control cost uh, because we, you know, we don't trade it, you know, excessively in our models. And although the internal expenses of, of institutional share class funds and ETFs, exchange traded funds, have come down a lot over the years, in our opinion, will obviously continue to come down a lot and compress. Uh, we know if we're trading with no with no commissions to build a portfolio that we're in, in theory don't have any expenses. We may have trading costs if we're trading a lot, but sure. the slippage on that is fairly negligible. So those are all kind of factors that that go into the analysis of, a, yeah. of what kind of portfolio solution we're going to deliver. And I think that cost, you know, is, is the is the intellectual property of working with an advisor versus having to pay the commission, right? Right. And that's what you're paying for. So when you look at uh, what, what just transpired in 2018, how do you think that sets us up coming into 2019? Yeah, 2018 was, boy, it started out great. You know, we had yeah. eight 8% month in January, and it was, you know, woohoo, off to the right. races. And, and uh, you know, it turned out to be kind of a tough year. The fourth quarter, um, you know, kind of culminated in, you know, the coming together of a lot of investor concerns and probably, uh, you know, reaction or a reset, maybe an over-reset, to all of those concerns that to some degree was probably necessary in the market. So uh, it was an interesting year in that uh, cash, which had sort of been an asset class, if you will, that had become out of favor. Right. Uh, the, you know, the easy carry trade of the last nine or so years was it was more important with quantitative easing to be in the game. Make sure you're in the game, and how you're in the game could be subject to debate, but just get in just the game in there, yeah. because we've got quantitative easing. There's a lot of liquidity being pumped into um, kind of an extra source of money, if you will, you know, to to uh, help propel and continue the advance of the markets. Uh, share buybacks, companies buying back their own stock had risen a lot over the last few years, a lot because growth was tough to achieve and to manufacture the kind of earnings that they wanted to show and represent in their periodic reporting, their quarterly reporting. Part of the game was built around their ability to, to buy back their own stock and uh, reduce the amount of shares that are outstanding, therefore increasing the earnings per share. And with low relative historical interest rates, Many companies were borrowing at those cheap rates to go out and buy back the stock, making the sort of empirical bet that the total return, if you're buying back stock, will will Not help produced. the company outgrow kind of the cost of borrowing the funds to do that. So we wound up in a year where cash kind of came back in vogue and was actually the best asset class of the year, despite the still relatively pretty low returns on you know cash proxies, right. money markets, and so forth. Um, it was. It ended up being a a uh, kind of an interesting year in that almost all asset classes globally were down for the year, and uh, cash was the big winner. So 
Um, it's been a while since we've seen that. It sure has. Um, another thing that we were worried about over the last few years, and we certainly had our you know hand in the pot to to ride the wave, so to speak, of it was the effect of sort of the Fang stocks. You know, listeners maybe have heard a lot about Fang. I think Jim Cramer takes credit. Rightly or wrongly, I'm not sure right, right. for coining the term fang, but it represents the first initial of some of the really large kind of go-go momentum stocks that make up, you know, an over-influence on the market. There were a couple of periods in the last couple of years where five stocks made up or accounted for about half the return in the market or more. So the Facebooks, the Apples, the Googles, Netflix, Amazons of the world, uh, and in a in a world that was sort of, um, it was, again, more important to be in the game, and money coming in was just kind of flowing in droves, cash inflows going into index funds and so forth, it was self-fulfilling. Yep. If if Apple's worth a, a trillion dollars and Cummins Engine is worth $30 billion, well, they've got to buy 30-some-odd times more Apple in that index fund to keep the the weightings because they're what they call market cap weighted. And that worked great. Our concern, you know, as we were riding this experience is what if the air comes out of that game, which it did in early October when the Fed announced that they were stopping quantitative easing. And now we're into sort of this game of quantitative tightening, which is manifested both in potential rate hikes, interest rate hikes, and how much are they going to buy back on the Fed balance sheet every month? They're talking about $50 billion a month. We actually think that risk, there's a lot of attention being you know, given towards, is, a, is the Fed going to continue to hike? Are they going to hike one right. time or two times or four times in 2019? I'm less concerned about that, actually, than I am how much they're going to retire off that balance sheet right. every month. And I think it's a dicey game if you're locking yourself into $50 billion a month, it, that may be the wrong number. I'm not sure. I'm sure they have it's a better. real number. Right. So our, our big concern was if the air comes out of it, as much as that helped on the upside and the experience, you know, what's that going to look like when outflows start coming out? And we saw that in the fourth quarter, and you saw some pretty big corrections in the FANG stocks. You may be able to isolate or put some attribution at the individual company level. Oh, Facebook had concerns and, you know, it was right to to correct it. But it had also gotten ahead of itself at yep. $220 a share. So you've seen some of these companies that got the big benefit of the run-up have, have corrected more, 30 to 40% in some cases, than the market corrected itself. And, and um, so that's, uh, you know, again, something that was kind of particular to the, to the uh, 2018 year. So when we come back with uh, Senior Wealth Advisor Selden Martin, we're going to talk about his long-term view about the equity market industry, and uh, or investing, I should say, and uh, we'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back to the Circuit of Success. I am your host, Brett Gilliland, and CEO and founder of Visionary Wealth Advisors. I'm in here today with Selden Martin, Senior Wealth Advisor for Visionary Wealth Advisors. So, Selden, we've talked a lot about uh, you know just the career, uh, you know, mutual funds and ETFs and and individual equities and the fiduciary side versus the independent side and all those things. And so, right now, though, I think the biggest thing, probably the question, guys like you and I get asked the most, is What's your long-term view of the market? Yeah, I think that's certainly a lot easier question, in my opinion, than 
what you'll probably ask me next, which is what do you worry about for 2019, mm-hmm. uh, the short-term view. So I'm actually incredibly excited. Uh, you know, I'm I'm obviously not a rookie in this business. I, we've talked about 37 years in yeah. the in the business, so somebody, a listener, can do their math and take a stab at my age. Uh, and one of the things I wake up every day and, and appreciative of and looking forward to is that I just I think the next 10 years, this decade from now until 2030, we're going to look back in 2030 and we're going to think we were living in the Stone Ages today. Wow. They have the capability to do things now that I think would blow the mind of the average invest, investor and in, in, individual. Well, it's even uh, hard to they, believe, sorry to interrupt you, but just think, we're really only about 10 years ago when the iPhone right. was created. Right now, what we carry in our pockets every day is more, like, what is a 100 times more powerful than the thing that sends a space shuttle to the moon? I think, I think the artificial intelligence, I think um, gene mapping... Uh, uh, Internet of Things, the what we'll see transform our world in the next ten years is going to be mind-boggling, and we're going to look back and can't believe. I don't think any of us Can will drive a car it? in ten years, and it's going to be a really exciting ride yeah. in the investment world as a player in the game, a person that gets to you know enjoy and be engaged, showing up at work and helping investors and people get to participate in all this i think we have an incredibly exciting 10 years ahead of us you know un- unfortunately the 10-year horizon may or may not work for every single investor sure but i think we're going to see a lot change during that time and and uh, if you have the ability to stomach kind of got what goes with that investing yep. which is that it tends to change quickly and therefore you get more ups and downs and a little more volatility with it if you can absorb that then i think you'll be rewarded you know over time with with very strong re, you know returns and wealth accumulation by investing in that space and you are correct uh selden that i am going to ask you about your short-term concerns so there's our long-term 10-year uh concern uh or not even concern but obviously excitement i mean because i couldn't agree more i think the next 10 years is i mean the things like you said we're going to be doing or we're gonna be like man we used to hold a phone up to our ear and talk right i mean who knows right but when you think about the short term, so look at 2019 as a whole, but then also maybe the first and second quarter of 2019, what are your concerns? Yeah, I think they're the headwinds that sort of were out there as the fourth quarter unfolded last year certainly haven't gone away. Yeah. So um, as of uh, this morning before I came in here, you know, I was listening to the news, Trump came on, and certainly was getting peppered with questions about the government shutdown and the wall, the the uh, tariff trade rhetoric and negotiations going on with China. Uh, global markets are clearly slowing. And uh, although our economy still is sporting pretty good numbers, depending on what metrics you're looking at, employment and producer price indices and different reflections that, that may represent how our economy is chugging along in the U.S., yeah. It'd be naive and incorrect to assume that we're not, of course, globally intertwined enough that what goes on in the rest of the world isn't going to impact us. Uh, it, you know, I'm sort of a believer that uh, the market sometimes can help precede what actually happens. So, did, you know, you could ask, did the market have a tough fourth quarter in 2018 because macro conditions were 
leading it down that path or did it somewhat lead it down the path and then the market's reaction to it helped self-fulfill what could eventually happen and although there's a lot of attention given to china right now i think europe's a big headwind and concern so the european markets uh germany and broader europe if the FTSE, which is more the the uh, great britain complex uh they had rough years uh last year and we don't know if Brexit's going to happen, if it's going to be soft Brexit or hard Brexit. Italy's under, you know, yeah. tough position right now. And as as big a player as China is becoming economically in the world, there's still a lot of really important banks that are based in Europe that are very intertwined with our banking and financial system. And so if you look at the bond market and sort of credit spreads, the the uh, what relative yields are kind of out there for the listener between, say, uh, less appealing, not necessarily junk, but less appealing corporate debt versus, say, a U.S. government bond, th- those spreads have widened out. And the bond market sometimes tells you a lot about the conditions in a macro sense. So I think those are pretty big um, headwinds that are out there in a technical sense. You know, then this is probably when you start talking technically instead of, say, fundamentally uh, about the market. Uh, then you open the door for a lot more variance of opinion. But typically when you get a pretty big drawdown, 20% type drawdown, which we saw from peak to trough, you get what's sort of called a reflex bounce in the market. We've gotten that. So you can choose to call it a reflex bounce or whatever, but kind of post the uh, Christmas holiday week through now, we've had a decent bounce back and we had a positive week in the market last week, which had been – not the norm for the last right. eight weeks or so. And and now the question is, do we go back and retest those lows again and sort of build a base? Most of the time, that's what happens. Um, on the good news front, um, we can resolve the, the Chinese trade tariff negotiations. They claim to be working. Who knows? There's a lot of claims sure. and debate right. about right. that. But I think that's a potential big catalyst in the market. We get that resolved and the doors kind of get opened back up in particular on those products and services in our economy that, you know, get sent into the, the Chinese economy. Um, that That's a potential big yep. uh, catalyst. They get a uh, bipartisan agreement of some version of border security, whatever that's going to be, wall or no wall or increased security, who knows where it's going to land. But a resolve to that and getting – the government opened back up. Yep. You know, the government being shut actually does have a little bit of a drag on the economy, and you're starting to see some revisions in the in, from economic analysts of, you know, is it a tenth of a point now already, and, you know, where is that? So all these things are right. catalysts, and, and they pick it back up. Our best bet is that the, you know, things slow a little bit in the U.S., we get these things resolved, and, and um, we manage to sort of avoid what I'd call a recession this yep. year, but maybe we probably are going to see a slowdown. We would think if that happens, then any kind of retesting in the very near term here sets the the basis to, to have a decent year in the market. One of the um, interesting stats that's out there is if you go back nine decades, pretty long it's almost time. almost as long as you've been in the business. Yeah, not maybe a little longer than <laughs> I am have been alive. But if you go back nine decades, there's only four times that there's been back-to-back down years in the stock market. So I'm wow. not saying it can't happen. Sure. But again, statistically, there's not a lot of evidence that uh, that that'll ha- happen. So, uh, so we're watching all these things in the near term. 
again, kind of lends itself towards one of the things that we try to do in controlling risk, is, which is that we'll raise cash occasionally. We're not market timers, but we think there's times to be more aggressive versus not. Yep. The preferred route would be to pick the phone up and call us or to email us. And then, you know, our first, uh, you know, assuming that it's the right fit for us to progress to the next step is to go sit down and meet with somebody and just, again, get into that, what I talked about earlier, that discovery phase in the, in the, in the process. So our my email is selden, S-E-L-D-E-N dot martin at vwa-llc.com. And my work number is 314-764-2733. My team, teammate is Jason, J-A-S-O-N dot baldus, B-A-L-D-U-S, at vwa-llc.com. So we'd love to hear from you and uh, you know look forward to um, helping any investors that would have an interest. You need uh, access to him and you don't remember all the information you just shared, you can reach out to me. We will get you in touch with Selden Martin. Just say, hey, I want to talk to Selden. Happy to introduce you guys. But uh, just like every week, we bring you great guests on the circuit of success. We like to talk about the attitude, the beliefs, and the action that ultimately get results in your life. And you can see how we're helping clients get results in their life today. So if you want more information, go to visionarywealthadvisors.com. You can also go to circuitofsuccess.com and we're on all social media platforms. So thanks for listening to the Circuit of Success. This podcast was a presentation of lineupmedia.fm. 